I had a sense um, in the first meeting, I thought maybe it was just for that meeting, but um, I felt the same sense of weightiness as I uh, was worshipping this morning for this meeting as well. This, uh, I've kind of gone to the week, so it's preached in the baptism of the Holy Spirit last week and um, did a great job. God really moved and came in the midst of His people. And I almost felt like it would be great to just follow up with another preach on the Holy Spirit. But we're following the text where God has led us. And um, say one thing first. Who um, was impacted last week by the Holy Spirit? Not like I enjoyed the meeting, but you felt the Holy Spirit touch you and maybe do some business in your life. Who, who was the eight people? <laughs> Hopefully more than that, because there were about 30 people up front here. So I'm hoping that a lot more of you are just too shy to admit it. Um, and so what I'm going to preach today is not on the Holy Spirit in the way that He comes and touches us. Um, but I do believe that there is something that God wants to do this morning through His Word. And I said in the first minute, I almost feel like God wants to cleave something off or cleave, um, cut off something from your life or cut you off from something. Sometimes we can become wed to our jobs or our careers or even our children and our dear of the way that we're supposed to raise them, or our marriages, or our relationships, or any number of things that become the driving force in how we live our lives, as opposed to how the gospel is supposed to be the driving force behind how we live our lives. And I felt like God wants to come and, and use a surgical knife and just begin to cut that thing off, and it's good for us. It feels like, like um, how can I live without this? You know, like the person that's got so used to having that growth on them, it's like, how could I possibly live without my extra whatever head on my shoulder yeah but actually as the surgeon comes in and cuts that thing off it's actually liberating for us and uh and so even as i minister today allow the holy spirit to come in and do that work this is this is i trust a serious not without its joy obviously but a serious message today thanks you can grab your seats so i'm uh, i'm going to read from acts chapter 8 which is where such was in last week as he preached on the baptism of the holy spirit and i'm going to preach the, the verses on, that are the bookends of that passage of Scripture that he, um, that he um, ministered out of. And we, um, we've been obviously working through the book of Acts starting three weeks ago when we took the chairs out and we just had a time of worship here. And uh, the, the intent was that our hearts would be postured in a certain way when we came into this season. And I, and I don't mean, I, I, it's a posture that needs to continue beyond the season as well. But there is something God is doing that requires us to be ready to receive and hear Him in terms of what's going on. Am I right, Jero? Okay. Um, oh, there we go. That doesn't make a difference. There we go. There we go. I'm going to sing you a song. That we posture ourselves for what God is going to do. I'm, I'm feeling loud if you bring me down a little bit. I know it's probably for the online one. Um, so last week, God came and really touched many lives with the Holy Spirit. We, we were praying for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's not something that we want to give lip service to. We want it to be a part of our lives. And even this morning, if you've not yet been baptized in the Holy Spirit and you want to come afterwards, why not come up and one of the elders or their wives or one of the ministry team here can actually pray for you to be um, baptized um, or refilled with the Holy Spirit. It, is, it should be a normal part of Christian living. But the reason why... Um, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon us is so that we will go. I said and when I preached two weeks ago that the reason why um, X, uh, X8-1 
happened is because Acts 1 8 didn't happen. So Jesus said in Acts 1 8 that I will, uh, you will receive the Holy Spirit and be filled and power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. And yet after, however many years later, probably three years later, the church was still gathered in Jerusalem, but wasn't, it wasn't in all those places. So God allows Acts 8.1, a great persecution rose against the church, not because God was punishing the church or disciplining it or any of those sorts of things, but to compel the church to be spread abroad into um, all of those nations. And so even as we prayed last week for the infilling of the Holy Spirit, it's not so that we can put on our family Christmas newsletter you know, this is what happened to us this year. I fell over or I shook or whatever it is that might have taken place at the moment or that, um, or that it's even beyond the experience of the very real presence of God, which I believe is part of the wonder of the gospel. It's that as we are filled, we would be empowered to go out and carry the gospel wherever we go. And so uh, let's dive into this passage of Scripture, Acts chapter 8, verse 14, um, 15 and 25. It says, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Pass forward to verse 25. When they had testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. So what's happening here is we know Philip is one of those who were scattered, so um, as, he w- as he went, he went preaching the gospel. I, I, I wonder if he was as, as taken by surprise as much as anybody else would have been, that as he's preaching this message, um, people give him his attention. People are being healed. Miracles are taking place. And people are coming to Christ. And there's a, actually a revival breaks out. I mean, it's something that we're praying for and trusting God for, that it's like, like every time Philip was preaching, people were getting saved. And, and act, a church got planted. Somehow the news of this gets back to the church in Jerusalem, and they, um, they decide they're going to send Peter and John up there. And at the, this part of it, um, the apostles sent Peter and John, is the part that can be, can, can be quite irrelevant to us if we don't approach it properly. So sometimes we read the scriptures like we might read a history book around the, you know, the, how America was settled in the West or or medieval Europe, and we, we read the stories of the, of the cowboys with their six-gun shooters and, and their hats on. I was actually going to wear a cowboy outfit today, but, um, but I didn't. And all um, the knights in shining armor, that would have been cool to come up here with a whole um, metal armor thing on. And what happens is we go, well, I know that's a part of history, but it has no relevance for today. There's no knights today. There's no cowboys today. I know that's a part of history, and actually, when I think about it, probably a lot of it is legend. There probably were guys that kind of sat on their horses with holsters here, but they weren't like, you know, like the, the heroes of the cowboys and the heroes of the knights. They weren't the knights of the round table and those kind of things. And in some ways, we can read this passage and see the apostles like that as well. So they're these guys that were part of the history of the church. It's worth knowing that there were these, you know, these apostles, and they did what they did, but they have no relevance to us today. There's no application to us today, and so we must get on with living our Christian walk with, um, and kind of leaving that relegated into the past. The problem is when we do that, and we come to Scripture in that way, is that there are, of course, there's always value in any Scripture we go into, and there's lessons that can be learned, but then there's parts of it that are just of no value to us, just of no relevance to us at all. And um, what we need to be asking ourselves is whether the apostles were indeed something that's just past 
part of the church or whether it continues to be relevant today. Are they just the knights in shining armor of the first century church or um, are they a breed of men that continue to be a part of God's plan for the church today? There was a guy that we met right at the beginning of the series called Saul. You'll remember he was standing there giving approval to um, Stephen when he was being stoned to death. Um, it, it goes on to say that he went around and ravaged the church. And um, Saul the Slayer, which is his WWF name, in case you didn't know, it's like, Saul the Slayer is in the house, kind of thing. That was him, and he was going around and tearing up the church. And um, somewhere along the line, by God's grace, the, the, the risen Christ appears to Saul on the road to Damascus. He gets saved in a radical way. And he becomes Paul the Pious or Paul the Profound or some other name that doesn't work as a WWF wrestler but actually had great significance. And uh, Paul um, writes a letter to one of the churches in, um, in, in Ephesus or to the church in Ephesus. This is years later now. And in this letter he explains where apostles come from and what the, what the reason is that they're given to the church. Not just apostles, he speaks about prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers as well. But it, it's such a significant passage because it helps us to understand whether they are still relevant to us or not. So it says this in Ephesians 4. If you've got your Bible, you can turn there. I'm going to read verse 8 and the verses 11 to 13. It says, When he ascended on high, obviously speaking to Jesus, this is a the scripture is quoting something else. When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. So the picture here is Jesus is ascending, and as he's ascending, he's giving to his church. Jesus said in Matthew 18 that I will build my church. And he sent the Holy Spirit to help us in the task. But one of the, the gifts... The gifts that he gives to the churches is, is the, the gifts of these men, these apostles, these prophets, these evangelists, these pastors and teachers. And so in some ways we could read that passage in verse 8 and say, he gave gifts of men to men. He doesn't come with an apostolic gift and say, who can I give this to? When the gifts of the Holy Spirit come, that's how it comes. The Holy Spirit comes and, there's, and he puts upon uh, a prophetic word on, um, on such. And so such receives the gift of prophecy at that moment and he prophesies. If such is not obedient, he'll take it and he may put it on somebody else. Or he'll put the gifts of healing on somebody to be used at a particular moment. And, he, and it says this, the Holy Spirit does it for the common good. And we can all function in all of those gifts. Isn't that wonderful? That every one of us can have a word of knowledge or operate by the gift of faith and the working of miracles or whatever it is. But, um, but the, the apostle is the gift. He doesn't receive the gift of apostleship. The apostle is the gift. The prophet is the gift to the church. The, the evangelist, the pastor, the teacher, they are the gifts to the church. And he goes in Ephesians 4, verse 12, and he says, They're given to prepare God's people for works of service. That's not the end of the story. So that the body of Christ may be built up, and in verse 13, until. So that they, they've got this work to do, and they're doing this work until something happens. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of of Christ. Now, God is doing amazing things in the earth today, and has always been doing amazing things in the earth and in His church, but I can't see the evidence that we've reached the fullness or the perfection of the unity of faith or the knowledge of Christ. Nor have we as a church come to the place of maturity where we, as the Scripture says, yeah, attain to the whole measure of His fullness. And so if we haven't got there yet, then the tool word tells us that 
that we still need the apostles and the prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers to do their work so that we work towards that until being completed. Do we have full maturity and uh, unity within the church? No. Do we still um, need these church-building gifts in the church today? Of course we do. And is Jesus still giving those gifts to the church? He is. He is building His church. Matthew 18, 16, from, he, he, will, he will build His church until the day that she is ready to be united with Him as His bride. And so the only conclusion that you can come to from this passage that Saul the Slayer slash Paul the Pious has written is that um, apostles, there should still be apostles around today. And if you track Scripture, once Jesus ascended, those 12 disciples who became 11 with Judas disappearing and then 12 again, Matthias added back into it, they were the apostles, the, the ascension apostles. And they were not added to. That was it. That was the complete number. But there were others that were called apostles in Scripture. Paul, as I mentioned already, again and again declares that I'm an apostle by the will of God. Barnabas is called an apostle. Apollos is called an apostle. I think Timothy and Silas in 1 Thessalonians or 2 Thessalonians are, are referred to as apostles as well, or at least apostles in training that will come into the fullness of that. And there are others as well. The other way that the Bible shows that these are not the knights in shining armor is that they are just absolutely ordinary men. You know, we, we consider ourselves like it's one of the, the great dangers when we sit and we listen to a preach. We go, well, Rob, that word's great, but it's not for me because I'm ordinary. And uh, I hope you do think you're ordinary in some way because it, it helps us to remain humble, to not think that we're like God's man of power for the hour or God's woman of power for the hour. We are, we are we, we're the created. That's what we are. We're sons and daughters of God. These other ordinary people around us are our brothers and our sisters. And it's no um, deficit to be ordinary. In fact, when Peter and John were brought before the Sanhedrin, Luke notes in Acts chapter 4 that, uh, that they, after interrogating him, it says, that this, it says this, that they realized they were unschooled, ordinary men. Like, I don't know what they were expecting. Like, yeah, that guy Peter, he, he preached today, 5,000 got added to the church. This Christian thing's going, when he comes in, yeah, they were expecting, I don't know, maybe a, a professor in religious studies or somebody that run their own, you know, multinational fishing company around the world or whatever it was. And this guy, he's like, he finished, his, he finished school and that was it. He didn't go study anything after that. He, he works with his hands. All the, he's ordinary. Man, he's as, he's as ordinary as they get. And John, it's exactly the same. There's, like, there's nothing special. We kind of want to, like, imagine if Steve Jobs had got into the church. Imagine, you know what I mean? Or that, that isn't how God thinks. He doesn't, like, he doesn't look for the extraordinary. He takes the ordinary and does the extraordinary through them. The, uh, so many of the disciples were fishermen. You've got Matthew was a tax collector, which basically means he worked for the government. That, that was what he did. He, just, he worked in a, in a job for the government. There were these Jewish zealots. They were the, kind of these loners. and they, oh, We're going to change the world type of thing. We're going we're gonna to bring this, uh, the, the, the new kingdom, what they understood be, to be the kingdom. And God took all of these and he used them to be those ascension apostles. They, they fell out with each other. We read that Paul and Barnabas had such a sharp dispute that they, they went separate ways. I trust they came back together again. They had to be publicly rebuked at times because of their hypocrisy or, or whatever it was. They were, man, they were, they were rank, ordinary like us. And the reason why I say that is, is because we need to be reminded that God still uses the ordinary. He still brings from the ordinary apostles. They're not the knights in shining armor like, oh no, he can't be an apostle. He's just an ordinary guy. 
That's what they said about Jesus, for goodness sake. And so I do believe, and I'm convinced, that this text, that little bit that says, and they sent Peter and John, who were the apostles, is still relevant for us. It, it speaks into the church today and must be applied. And so let's have a quick look at, at what uh, the map I put on two weeks ago, which showed you what happened when the persecution came upon the church and how they, they, they scattered. And so in this map, which one day, by the grace of God, will appear on the screen, is, um, there she is, is, um, is it, like that's, that's the, the world at that time. Now, I know there's much, much more, and there are powers that be in Rome and all those sorts of things, but as far as the gospel goes, you've got Jerusalem at the center of the square around it. What's the first thing that needs to happen? If that's where the gospel is, it needs to go from there out. And so we see the Holy Spirit at work. These believers that are scattered by circumstance or the sovereign will of God, they scattered anyway, and the Holy Spirit uses them. The gospel, he anoints them like he did with Philip and many others so that as they preach the gospel, it's received. But then we come into the next phase, and there's two scriptures I want to add to the one I read in Acts chapter 8 that show us that there's a bit of a pattern here. Acts chapter 11, you remember I referred, referred to this two weeks ago. Um, it starts off by saying, at the time when there were the scattering because of the persecution of S Stephen, some men from Cyrene and Cyprus had gone into Antioch and preached not just to the Jews, but to the Hellenists as well. And in verse 22 it says this, News of this reached the ears of the church of Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Acts 13, now Barnabas is in Antioch with Saul, and it says this in verse 2 to 4. It says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. That's weird. Somebody from Kuwait is funny me. The difference between the disciples and the rest is that they were... They were not scattered, they were sent. Leave me alone. Um, <laughs> if you're online phoning me, I'm going to get you back. Um, and, uh, and if you look at the next map now, you'll see how the Holy Spirit is at work here. This is, like, it's marvelous. It's, it's incredible to watch the Spirit of God actually building His church. It's not like the Holy Spirit has kind of got dice and going, oh, let's see what happens now. Kind of throw it out there. Oh, okay, that's, you know, there was a persecution. He's, he's deliberately and intentionally advancing His church. And so Peter and John go to Samaria and they come back to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is the base church from which they're operating. Later on in Acts chapter 11, Barnabas, also in that base, when they hear about the revival taking place in Antioch this time, sent Barnabas to go up there. And, and, they, and, and so he goes up. He then stays there. He doesn't come back to Jerusalem other than on visits later. He joins together with Saul who he goes off to go find and tosses and brings him in because he knows that God is doing something here. And as they work there, Antioch be then becomes the base. And then they are sent on trips by the Holy Spirit from Antioch. And they go to Cyprus and up into Asia Minor. They preach the gospel and come back down again. They'll go on other trips separately. And at some point, Paul will then go um, all the way to Ephesus. And that will become the new base. He'll be there for a couple of years and he'll operate out from there. And then probably, if uh, hard to fully understand the time at the end of it, but Paul will end up in Rome, and that will become the base, although he is restricted in his home for at least a part of that time, for the base of operation for the gospel is spread out. And so it doesn't mean that Jerusalem was no longer a base. It was just no longer um, the, the base that Acts speaks about with Paul. Antioch was at one point, and then Ephesus, and then Rome. And I believe 
Dubai. I believe Dubai becomes one of those base churches, as there are many others around the world as God uses them. And so we see an amazing work of the Holy Spirit here. And I don't know about you, but I love asking questions when I read the Scriptures. You know, I go, I've got question marks all over my Bible, like, who's this guy? Where did he come from? What's he doing now in this story? And, and who's she? What, why is she saying this? What is, what is he? The light will come on, on a question that I had in a portion of the New Testament, and I'll cross-reference it so that I ever need to um, understand that again. I can see where it goes. But, but when you read the Bible, you should be asking questions. You don't have to read like, I know this is true, so I can't ask any questions. It's just me. I'm just stupid. I'll just miss that part out. Don't read the Bible like that. Go, like, God's given me a brain. This makes no sense. But the Bible must make sense. So there's an answer here somewhere. Help me, Holy Spirit, to find the answer to the thing. And that, that we should be asking questions when we come to these passages of Scripture. Number one is, who's doing the sending? And so we saw in Ephesians chapter 4 that Jesus is the one that gives the gifts. And so apostles come from Jesus. We don't self-appoint. I, um, <laughs> I remember um, being in Zimbabwe the one time and walking through this um, market in a, an area called Chinoy. And one of the, the phrases that they use in, um, in, in Africa, really, is mfundis, which means teacher. And that's what you would call somebody that's, uh, you know, you, you would, instead of using the title pastor, which we don't believe in using, so just call us by our names. But they would, they would they, in fact, in, in India and Sri Lanka as well, the title thing. My golly, what's going on there? I walk into a room and they're all pastor, 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 pastor. They don't even know each other's names. I'll actually go, hey, what's his name? I don't know, pastor. Like, <laughs> they don't even know. They've got no clue. Um, so instead of being an honoring thing, it's actually a dishonoring thing. How about using the name that his mom and dad gave him and show that you actually know the guy? Anyway, that's another thing all completely. So I'm walking through this, this um, market and it's Mfundis, Mfundis, Mfundis. Every second guy we're walking past is Mfundis. I think, like, these guys must be appointing themselves. You know what I mean? Like, in the back garden, it's like, lay, lay hands on, oh, I'll point you from this now in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Oh, I'm ready to go like I did. Like, this, Jesus is the one that gives these gifts. And then we see in Acts chapter 8, when they said the apostles sent them. I believe, and, and there's evidence with Paul going to, um, down to Jerusalem to, in a sense, submit his ministry to Peter and John, who gave him the right hand of fellowship, that the apostles recognize that apostolic gift. There is a, there's a way that God works things together. Then they are, um, they are released and sent by the church. We see in Acts chapter 11, where Barnabas is sent by the church. I believe apostles are, there's a, there's a part of a church of which they're part, where their lives are lived out, where there's a degree of accountability, and they, so they can be sent. And so as apostles work into context, they, there's a place where they're accountable. They're not just these free agents these kind of cowboys, six shooters that do whatever they want. And then they are sent on their specific assignments by the Holy Spirit, as we see in Acts chapter 13. And so this is, there is somebody that's orchestrating everything that's going on, and that is the Holy Spirit. This is not the apostles' playground to, to kind of do whatever they want. There were times where Paul says, I really want to go there, and the Holy Spirit wouldn't let him go there. Okay, then I'm going to go there. No, I'm not going to go there. The Holy Spirit says, that's where I want you to go. And so we, we understand that this is not... Um, like a free-for-all. This is God's plan for His church. The second question is, what do they do when they go? I mentioned that um, Barnabas and Saul, who on the, along the way would become Paul and Barnabas, um, he gets his name changed along the way. They, um, they did this trip down to Cyprus and then up into Asia Minor, and they went to Lystra, Iconium, Derby, and there was another church, or whatever it was. 
and uh, Antioch as well, actually. So they, they went to go visit those churches, and along the way, they did their job, and they came back again to Antioch at the end of it. But in chapter 14 of Acts 13, because that, that, that whole trip is covered in, the, in Acts 13 and 14, in chapter 14 and verse um, 21, there's this little cameo for a couple of verses there that kind of highlights what the apostles do. It says, they preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. Wonderful. Then they returned, so they preached, they won the disciples, they went to the next town. It says, then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. There's something in the heart of the apostle that wants us to stand firm in our faith. Like, don't just want to kind of put the gospel out there and do with it whatever you want. Once you've come to Christ, this is yearning to see you uh, brought together to be this body, to be this family that was spoken about today, to, for the life of the church to manifest, and then for that to reproduce. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church, and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. There's another great scripture, which I don't have up here, in 1 Thessalonians 3, 8, and 10, 8 to 10. Paul writing to the church there and says, for now we really live. <laughs> That's a great way to start a sentence. Now I feel alive. If you are standing fast in the Lord, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. And Chris Vinat, who will be with us next week, by the way, and so Chris and Merrill, um, really make sure that you sign up and you're part of the time on Friday morning, and if you're one of the leaders, be in the evening. If you're not a leader and you really want to be in the evening, then speak to one of the elders, okay? But um, um, he, used to, he used to speak about the role of the elder being headship, hardship, and hopeship. And I thought it's, I remember hearing that years ago, and it's such a great picture to be able to remember what it is that they're supposed to be doing. Headship speaks of things like the, the, the structure and the pattern around the church, which the church fits. The things that are, I suppose we might call wineskin parts of the life of the church. And you might say, well, that's kind of boring. What difference does that make? If, if somebody, you know, what difference does governmental structure make in the life of the church, whether elders or no elders? I want to tell you, it makes all the difference in the world. It's, it's the difference for many people from being caught up in places where they have no part to play or caught up in places where they're not being protected. I was thinking this morning as we were um, praying, it was something, I can't remember this, what it was, it was going through my mind, but the outcome was, as I was saying, thank you, God, that this is a place where people can feel safe because the elders understand their role to be fathers within the church. And what so often happens, though, is there's, there's, we, we try and figure out our way of doing it. And so instead of, as we can see in Scripture, that pastors or elders or overseers, and they, they, this, they different functions or roles within the same office of elder, and we then start to think, well, you know, I wonder how I could make this a little bit better. And so we take the pastor and we shift him on top of the pile like this. And so he becomes the pastor and he kind of leads the elders like this. And then we take the overseer and we say, well, if we put him up here like we're moving around on some sort of um, computer um, software. You know, we're moving things around like this. No, no. There's a pattern that God has put in place in this scripture. And if we'll find it um, and allow these apostles to help it get established, we're going to have churches that can stay like the flexible wineskin instead of becoming the rigid wineskin. Hardship speaks, hardship, not hardship. Hardship speaks of, of our values, the truths of God's word being lived out in the midst of us. That the gospel actually 
um, is evident and living in us. One of our values, for example, as well of life is motivated by grace. There's lots of ways that we can motivate you. We can motivate you by fear. We can motivate you by anger. We can motivate you by whatever, by promise of rewards or promotion or popularity, all sorts of things. But we believe the scriptures say the reason why we do the things we do is because we've been the recipients of God's amazing grace. What can happen, though, in churches is we can begin to drift. And uh, we see this in the, the Galatian church. They had, they had received the gospel so amazingly well uh, as Paul had preached it to them. But somebody else had come along and said, you know what you need? Jesus, yes, 100% Jesus, but plus something else. Jesus plus circumcision, or Jesus plus church attendance, or Jesus plus you read your Bible every year, or Jesus plus this many hours of prayer each day, or Jesus plus you don't drink alcohol, or whatever it is that we can add on to the plus thing, it just, we no longer have the grace of God. I can remember we were on holiday with a some friends of ours some years ago, they were not saved, many years ago, it was like 25 years ago now, and um, we were out in the mountains somewhere, like long dirt road, and uh, it was cold, it was winter, and uh, they got up at 4 o'clock in the morning to go find a church. They weren't saved. They weren't, now I've got to reiterate this, they were not even believers. Um, and they got up at 4 o'clock to go to church, and the reason was because they were a church, the church they were a part of said to them that if you miss too many meetings, you can no longer be saved. So they went to a church that was part of their grouping that didn't even speak the language that they spoke. It was in Zulu. And sat there not knowing what was going on, but ticking off their box like this. And so Paul comes into the church where that legalism has begun to bleed into it and says, no, no, and fights again for the grace of God. What a wonder for us to know that, um, that there's these um, gifts that are given to the church that are outside of our church. They come in and help us if we drift along the way. If that would have happened to us, I, I trust they would come and they definitely would and would speak to us and elders and say, guys, can you see your drift going on here? And hopefully, because our hearts are open and soft before God, we would go, oh, you're right, that thing that we did, we, we didn't scope it properly and it, it, it does convey that message and, and we would turn the, the ship again. If we were hard-hearted, they would come in and speak like Paul did in that letter with this kind of like um, aggression even to, to, to God the gospel. And then lastly, this hope ship which is a sense of this gospel partnership that God has called us to, the sense of vision. So um, Philippians 1 verse 5, Paul writing to the church of Philippi says, I, you know, I, I pray for you whenever I think of you guys with thanksgiving. And he says, the reason why it's thanksgiving is because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And that's what it's about. It's a partnership in the gospel. Not a partnership in will of life, not a partnership in Genesis apostolic sphere, not a partnership in a denomination or any, or any person's ministry, it's a partnership in the gospel. What's good for the gospel is what holds us together. What's good for the gospel is what gives vision and clarity to our lives. I'm going to skip over the one question. I, just want, to, I want to ask this question. I have to put my glasses on to see my notes every now and again. But I also like to see you, so that's why they come off again. Is, um, is there a better way? Is there a more modern way for us to do this? You know, maybe, maybe instead of because it seems to me apparent that this is an incredibly indispensable ministry for a healthy, reproducing local church, to have apostles come in and for us to partner with those apostles in the work that God's given us. But maybe what we need is, is for us to add on things like bishops and, and finance committees and presidents of the church and CEOs of the church. Like we actually see those things taking place. And maybe they're better. Maybe the church will run more efficiently if we had a president instead of a, a team of elders. 
Maybe it was just that the Holy Spirit hadn't had enough TED Talks yet when it, when it came time to telling us what's going on. Because if the Holy Spirit could have only had some of our incredible TED Talks from today, He would know about things like management principles and um, synergistic efficiencies and um, sending young firebrands off to, to go study theology at schools and have it sucked out of them because there, there's no faith there for the, the reality of the gospel in so many of these places. And Or... Is it possible that the pattern that God's put in place in the, in the book of Acts that we're reading about now actually is for all time? It's for us even in this day. Is it, is it possible that the Holy Spirit actually understood what our world would be like in this modern age and still said there will be apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers that are gifts to the church to build up the local church? I believe it is that way. And uh, when we think about it, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. His word is unchanging. Like, we, we don't have to get, we get, we get more modern translations because our language changes, but they're translating the same text. It's the same text. It's been around for thousands of years. It's been around through cultural upheavals, world wars, and uh, nations being split apart and joined together. The word of God remains exactly the same for us. And uh, Jesus is still building his church today, like he was building it right at the beginning. And he still gives the gifts of these um, uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to the church today. What does that mean for us? I suppose that's where we've got to land at today. Hey, what does it mean for you? Give me a sec, bro. Don't steal my thunder, yeah? Um. <laughs> well of life was planted by an apostle 21 years ago. I believe Mike Eltringham, he was the guy that planted Will of Life together with his wife, Charmaine, and a, and a group of um, others that gathered around. In the first months of the church, it was, it was a, a community of, say, 30 or so people, 20, 30 people, and Mike plants his church here. He planted in the midst of an apostolic movement that was taking place, of which we were a part of. There were other things going on on the earth, other apostolic movements. This was the one we were a part of. And uh, Wayne mentioned in the first meeting how um, they actually got birthed by one guy opening his Bible and looking at the book of Acts. He was a pastor of a church. And looking at the book of Acts and looking at his church, looking at the book of Acts, looking at his church and going, why are they different? What, what if we actually believe what it says in the book of Acts and start to put it into practice? And that birthed a, a movement that would plant churches in the 25 years that we were a part of it in 76 nations. I, I can remember people coming and, and cashing in their pension funds to go plant churches. I mean, there was a radical fire that, that came on. And, um, and one of those church plants was Will of Life. They got planted here. And there were church plants from Will of Life into other places that took place over that time. And so in the very DNA of this church is this, ap this apostolic call. And it may not be in your DNA yet, but if you're a part of this church, God wants to infuse you with that thing as well. He wants to take some of our understandings of the church that we've lived with, like he did with the guy that started a movement, Dudley. He wants to take them out, and he wants to put in. Jeremiah's ministry was to pull down and to build up. And so there is a pulling down of thinking. Some of the thinking might be, um, this is the job of the paid clergy to go do this stuff. It's not. That isn't what we see in the scripture. There are no longer apostles. We have guest preachers and bishops that come in and tell us what to do. That it's it becomes organizational instead of relational. All of those things are not true. The truth of the book of Acts continues to be our truth for today. And so a couple of years ago, so, so we've been meandering through this course 
for some time. The, the, the way that God moves is never a straight line like a highway, although I, I know there are scriptures about the highway. But, um, but the kingdom of God meanders like a river. There are moments where you think, well, where is God in this? It's, it's still going. It's coming. The, it never, the, the, the gospel is always moving forward. And so about three years ago now, I think, we had um, we planned to get together with a group of friends. Um, some of the guys we knew, I'd met them maybe once or twice. And some of the guys I'd known as long as 25 years ago. One of them, weirdly, even did articles with me in Durban at, when I was working for Deloitte nearly 30 years ago. How crazy that was. So we were together there, and now he leads a church in, in the UK. And so we were brought together early in the year. Chris had said, why don't we just hang together? There was a conference. We had just got a, he had a friend that had a cottage, beach cottage in Laguna Beach. Nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's, I mean, why would you say no to that? So I said, yet for no spiritual reasons, just to be able to go there was sounded like a good plan. And we were going to just hang together. And God, in His providence, though, had prepared that that would become a catalyst for something else. And so in the six months from when the invite came out to us ending up there, God began to stir something up. Um, for us as a church, we as an eldership were wrestling through some things, and we, um, we were asking some really tough questions. So by the time we landed at that beach cottage in Laguna, the Holy Spirit had prepared us, and it turned out that those um, six couples that met there would become the beginning of what is now um, this apostolic movement that we're a part of called Genesis Collective. You can stick it up now. Thanks, buddy. And uh, this has, uh, that's in the sense of how we represent it. The blue arrows are coming out from Dubai, and that's obviously us, and it's not meant to be comprehensive at all. It's just a, a sense of the picture of we working together, partnering with guys, and those arrows would flow both ways as well in um, Thailand and Sri Lanka and India, and those are genuine and meaningful relationships. There are other places as well, but, um, but we're not about just listing the names of places. We're working with guys for, for 20 years, I think, in Zimbabwe, and more recently in Mozambique and in Malawi as well, and in South Africa. But we're also connected now, not just us and our work, we're connected back into this bigger picture with the guys like um, Chris and Merrill um, in California and others there, my, uh, Matt Terry with um, Keith and Heath in the UK, with uh, Nick, um, Andrew and um, George, for example, in South Africa. And so there's this, this beginning to multiply like this. Why don't you go to the next slide? And this is what God actually wants. He wants to take what was contained, con contained in Jerusalem and multiply it so that we've got an Antioch as well. Now you've got Antioch and Jerusalem, both as bases. And then he wants to now have Ephesus also as a base. And then Rome as a base. And he wants to take one apostolic movement, which was those 12 that were gathered in Jerusalem, and multiply them out. So that Thomas would go through to the east, and um, Peter would go to the Jews, and um, Paul to the Gentiles. And there was multiplication of these apostolic movements. Years ago, Nick Hardy preached about uh, multiplication, and he spoke about an elephant. And he said... You know, an elephant can grow, I think it is four tons. I think that's a, the kind of maximum an elephant can grow to. And if, if you want 12 tons of elephant, it doesn't, you can't just keep feeding that, that beast. You know what I mean? Like, come on, buddy, you've got to grow. Like five tons now, and like, just keep, like, it, it stops to function the way that's intended. But if the elephant reproduces, if it multiplies, you can have an infinite weight of elephant around. And God wants a multiplication of that gospel. And this is significance for you, is that there's no limit. The sky is literally the limit. Won't the worship team please come up? Sometimes, in moments like this, um, you say, well, I'm really glad Rob's excited about this. And, and, um, and I hope he does do, and he represents us well, kind of his will of life, and we'll send him and whatever. 
or maybe the whole eldership, we need to send them, send them out, which is quite nice, have all the elders out some Fridays, but not me. But that isn't what we see here. The whole of the book of Acts is that it's ordinary people doing it. And actually what I'm saying to you today is I want you to go. I want you to go from Will of Love. I want, I want you to go. I don't want you to go. <laughs> I don't. I, I hate saying goodbye to people when they go. It's been, it's a, my, my heart of past is torn apart every time it happens. No matter who it is and when it happens. It's been one of the pains of being in ministry in Dubai is having to say goodbye to so many people. But one of the great joys as well. If, if it's in God. Some of you God is calling to relocate with business and you go into a place where there's no church or no New Testament church in, and you're going to go to be a beachhead for the gospel in that place. You're going to run your business but you're, gonna, but you're also going to gather some people in your home and you're going to say, Rob, when I've got four or five families here, will you send somebody? Will you come? Will you help us? I'm not going to lead this thing but I'll be, the, I'll be the one that breaks the way open and then somebody comes and takes this fledgling little church and grows it. That's what happened in Doha. 25 years ago, uh, a ship's pilot moved across there, gathered a few people around them. Now it's a, it's a massive church that has planted churches all over the world. That's what happened here. Two pilots here gathered a few people and said, can you send someone? And the apostles sent Mike and Shomaine. And then from here, a church has been planted into Abu Dhabi and into Dubai and into Iraq and into Australia and into France and, and all over the world. And, and seed from the church has been spread everywhere. And you are that seed. Stand with me, please. My challenge to you today is, is will you get on board? Are you a spectator or a participant? Are you disqualifying yourself? Are you too scared? It's going to cost me too much. Next week, Chris comes here. We recognize him as an eldership, as an apostle. We recognize him because we speak to you, the church, as an apostle. Not everybody does. Paul wasn't recognized as an apostle by everybody, but to us he is. I pray that as he comes in here with Meryl, that he will stir us up on top of this. On Friday, on Wednesday, we prayed with the pastors. I told you over the last few weeks, we've been praying with the pastors quite a lot. God's been doing some amazing stuff there. We, we actually chose to fast that day and pray. And it was like, um, we all love our food. But we, we put it aside because we wanted to kind of get our minds and our bodies in line with what God was doing. We felt there was something significant coming. It came out of that passage I read from Acts chapter 13. While they were fasting and worshiping, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me. And I feel like God wants to set apart some of you today. It doesn't mean that you're going to go leave here and quit your job and go travel to Antioch today. But there, the journey of a thousand miles starts with the first step, doesn't it? Where God sets you apart and you say, I'm going to prepare myself now for what's to come. I'm going to allow the Lord to shape my marriage, to shape my parenting, to shape my finances, how I see my job. How I let him come in and shape my um, understanding of his word, my times of study, my, my like, like what do I come in? My messages, have I got something to carry? God wants to come in. He wants to start that this morning. Are you on board? 
And the answer, friends, is like, like this is an easy quiz, okay? Because the answer is yes. You just got to say yes to God all the time. And uh, even when you don't know what it's going to involve and how to get it, you say yes. And that's what I'm wanting you to do this morning. Yes, Lord, I'm on board. Yes, Lord, I'm on board. And then let Him do it. It'll fit you. That's the wonderful thing about God. He calls you into a thing that fits you. It fits you. You were made for it. You were being prepared for it even before you were born. He's not going to suddenly expect you to be somebody else. He expects you to be you as He calls you into this incredible task. Why don't you raise your hands, please? Father, I hope that everybody here in their heart is saying, yes, I'm on board. I hope that, Lord God. I pray that. I pray, Lord, for those that are the followers of Christ, that they would follow you to the cross, Lord God, as we have done. Receive forgiveness of our sins, our adoption as your sons and daughters. And then we will continue the journey, Lord God, as the ambassadors of Christ, through whom you, Lord, make your appeal that those lost out there would be reconciled to God the Father through Jesus. And this morning I'm asking, Lord God, that you would be doing a work in us that is way beyond what my words could ever accomplish or my, my, my passion could accomplish. I pray that it would be a work of your Holy Spirit in the hearts and the minds of those that are here present in those secret places. Father, where idols have been set up, where they've been brought down, where we've been, we've been lashed to masks that are, that are not the masks of the gospel, where those ropes be cut, Lord God, where fear has been holding us back, would you remove it from our lives? I pray for a kind of extravagance to come upon us, like the, the sower of the seed that just scatters it like this. I pray we would come into the, the hands of the sower, that you, the extravagant God, would take a hold of us and extravagantly do something with us. And so I speak that over your people. I, I pray against every disqualifying voice that is speaking over life right now. Lord, could we be, as I said earlier, one of these crazy, weird churches where everybody's called, that actually you have to empty us out. And we've got to find all new people because everybody's gone to do something. And uh, I pray that over us. I pray that not one single person allows himself to be cornered somewhere instead of being released into this wonder, adventure, Lord God, that you've got us on, this global gospel adventure that will resonate through all eternity, Lord God, that is bigger than all the universes put together. This story is the story. In yes. Jesus' wonderful name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.